0: Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess.
1: In this episode, we interview Dr. Vina DuBall, a professor of law at UC Hastings. Vina received her JD and PhD from UC Berkeley, where she conducted an ethnography of the San Francisco taxi industry. Veena's research focuses on the intersection of law, technology, and precarious work. She uses empirical methodologies and critical theory to examine the impact of digital technologies and emerging legal frameworks on the lives of workers, the co-constitutive influences of law and work on identity, and the role of law and lawyers in solidarity movements.
0: In this interview, some of the topics that we cover include... What is precarious work, and how does it impact the psychology of labor? How might platforms like Uber and Lyft be negatively impacting their workers? How do gig economy apps control the lives of those who use them for work? How do we regulate the gig economy in a way that empowers workers? And finally, what is techno-utopianism, and how does it influence capitalism and colonialism?
1: It was our pleasure to interview Vina for this episode, especially as she finds herself at uh, the forefront and in the center of so many of these issues uh, that are being fought and engaged with legally right now uh, as we're releasing this episode. And so we're so grateful for Vina taking the time to be with us. And also, uh, we learned so much about how uh, these issues and how precarious work are impacting people all over the globe, but also locally as well. And without further ado, we are so excited to share this interview with Vina Dubal with all of you. It is our pleasure to welcome today Vina Dubal to the podcast. How are you doing today, Vina?
2: Great, thank you so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. And as we get started and dive into this interview, uh, I was wondering if we could just start with a little bit of your story and what motivates you to do the work that you do.
2: Yeah. So, um, I guess I, you know, I'm the child of immigrants and, um, and I sort of have an atypical family and so much as, um, my, my mom was the breadwinner and my, my dad stayed at home and, um, and largely because he was pushed out of the labor market, not because he, you know, wanted to be a stay-at-home dad. And um, I really have seen in my um, in my life, both in my in my in my immediate family and my extended family, really a lot of um, of you know economic suffering. And I've always been interested in the ways in which um, immigrants in the United States. Um, you know, either thrive or or not as a result of laws and policies and firm decisions. And so, um, you know, I I guess what what I'm the project that that I've been working on for the last decade is um, is really focused on the production of precarious work through technology. Um, But what what got me to arrive there was um, was really a not a non technologically sort of informed um, question around, uh, around precarious work and immigrant worker experiences, particularly male worker experiences around precarious work.
1: Could you explain for folks who haven't heard the term precarious work before uh, what you mean by that?
2: Yeah. So um, in general, I would say that for most of the tw- 20th century, for a good, you know, for uh, Fifty to sixty years in the twentieth century, particularly in the post-war period, we had what we what we think of as secure work. You had people who were working uh, mostly full-time jobs whose hours were um, were stable and secure, whose income was stable and secure, and um, and as a result, who whose particularly this is I mean white men in particular, but whose um, whose lives as a result were 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 more or less predictable. Um, And sociologists and now more increasingly um, other people in other disciplines as well have started to, over the last 10 years, talk about the way that people um, uh, experience uncertainty in their lives, particularly economic uncertainty as precarity. Um, And so precarious work is work that is is unstable, unpredictable, uncertain, um, and there's a whole sort of uh, there's a whole uh, across disciplines from public health to education. Um, there's a whole lot of discussion of the implications of that kind of uncertain work, what it does to people psychologically, what it does, um, what it does to people's families, what it does to them individually, and um, and also socially, and uh, and the sort of origins of precarious work. I think. Um, uh, it, People look at not just firms as sources of precarious work, but also um, entire social and economic systems, including, you know, everything from education to um, to uh,
0: firm policy. So you mentioned that you went from just working with precarious work to how technology influences this precarious work. And I'm wondering if there's a specific memory, experience, or project that made you uh, turn towards technology in this space.
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. So I I guess I can tell the story in two ways and they both kind of um, collide. in a particular moment um so my my family in india my the dad my dad's side of the family is from a small village in um in the westernmost part of the state of gujarat and they were they were craft um, craft people. They were artisans. They, for generations, made saris. And um, until the 1970s, they made saris, um, and particularly they did these designs in the saris called bandani, and this is a type of tie dye. Um, they did this tie dye using. using fabrics i'm sorry not fabrics using dyes that were made from um you know botanical natural sources and in the 1970s it became sort of the fad to use not the dyes that they had been using for generations but to use german imported chemicals to um to dye the saris and um the result of the this ended up being that many people died of cancer, including my my grandfather. ended up um, dying of what I thought, what I think is an was an occupational hazard as a result of the chemicals. He died of of um of leukemia, and it's, you know, at some point in my life, I, 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 I think probably in college, I started to think about this as um as a story about technology, colonialism or post colonialism um. Uh, the de- developing world or the global south and in um, the ways that uh, that workers or individual people's lives were sort of impacted and their story is not being told, you know, like literally this this sort of um, quote unquote technological advancement, this this way that that the country in in the post-colonial moment was thinking about what it meant to uh, catch up with the rest of the world, um, resulted in a kind of uh, development. And I don't, I don't mean to say development in a normative sense, but just in a descriptive sense, a kind of development that was really, um, you know, really painful and, um, and actually, um, you know that killed people had real really negative impacts on people's lives and so it just sort of gave me that critical critical framework in thinking about technology more broadly and my family situation and my my interest in precarious labor um, ultimately led me into studying the taxi industry this became a really sort of interesting space for me in part because it was kind of, it was a very common place for people, particularly immigrant men from my community who were pushed out of the labor market to find work. Um, and it was also work that they embraced because it allowed them to take care of their, their parents and their families and do these sorts of, uh, you know, have some scheduling autonomy in their lives. And it was also interestingly a place of real camaraderie, you know um, again, men who are otherwise, um uh, Emasculinated in the mainstream economy, really found friendship in um in waiting in the airport lines in um in LaGuardia or at SFO or at the San Jose Airport, and um and it was a place where they created community and um kind of found found little pieces of of home and identity. And so I, I studied the taxi industry. I, I represented taxi workers when I was a I so I should say I'm a lawyer. Um, in addition to. In addition to having a PhD, I I practiced law for about five years, and I represented taxi workers, and um, and I decided to write my dissertation on on the taxi workers that I had um, had sort of worked with when I was um, when I was practicing. And as soon as I filed my dissertation, Uber and Lyft hit the streets of San Francisco, <laughs> and uh, my first response to this. Um, phenomenon, which was a larger phenomenon that I was experiencing all around me. You know, I had lived in um, the Bay Area and, uh, you know, went to Stanford, then um, went to Berkeley for law school and graduate school and lived in the Bay Area for you know, at this time, at this point, over 10 years, my entire adult life. And I was seeing this rapid transformation of an urban space around me in San Francisco, where it was, it it went from a city that was really sort of um, idiosyncratic and sort of beloved for its art scene and, um, and it's um, sort of uh, hippie vibe and um, alternative cultures to uh, a, to a very technologically for technology firm oriented space. And that was as a result of decisions made by um, by uh, different mayors who sort of invited in these firms and gave them tax breaks and created spaces for them on Market Street and really gentrified and changed the city. And so as I was finishing up my dissertation, all of this was happening and um, and Uber and Lyft, I started to hear from taxi drivers um, that there were these bandit tech cabs who were picking up um, picking up riders in their in their own personal vehicles and cutting in line at the hotels and um and I really at first just ignored it (laughs) I just I thought to myself this is going to go away this is some like silly tech startup and um and it's so dangerous like who's going to get into someone else's car when that person isn't a regulated you know taxi driver it seems seems so crazy of course the state is going to come down and and Make these people go out of business, and and so I, you know, I ignored it for for a while. And the taxi drivers who I organized with would just get more and more and more agitated, and more and more angry. And they did really, um, really amazing things to organize against um, against the uh, the. Uber and Lyft as a, a and sidecar at the time as they started to grow they um the dri- the Uber Lyft and sidecar drivers were all driving without commercial insurance so if they got into an accident um they would have the drivers would have you know had to bear all of the of the costs of the accident and there would have been no way to cover the um cover the uh, the people, the consumers, the writers who got, who were, who were injured in the accident. And so they were collecting license plates and reporting them to the, to insurance companies. And then, um, they were writing these really like beautiful, beautiful legal briefs to the state of California for, um, why they should not allow these companies to operate in the way that they were operating. And, um, And, you know, I still kind of continued to be like, okay, this is going to go away. It's going to go away. And then in 2013, um, the state of California created a whole new set of rules for this company, um, for these companies. And it really opened my eyes, I think, to the first time I started to see the way that um, well-financed firms, uh, tech firms in California, well-financed tech firms, um, Are were operating by creating legal systems that um, that no one else had to abide by, (laughs) but that that worked for them and their business models. And there were so many, and you know, again, it seemed like nuts to me. It seemed like how could this possibly happen? This wasn't good for consumers. This wasn't good for the environment. um, This wasn't good for workers. Like, why was this? Why was this allowed to? to unfold in this way. And then it went from like, you know, after the state of California created regulations, um, and called them transportation, gave them a name, transportation network companies. Then we saw this kind of work proliferate, not just all over the United States, but all over the world. And not just in the Uber economy, but then we had the the food delivery economy in Europe and, um, in China in particular. And, you know, there ever you know, for a while it was, there were a few years and a few, maybe five years ago, there were, the joke was the Uber of like, you know, what are you going to be the, um, the Uber of, of house cleaning, the Uber of dry cleaning, the Uber, you know, like, and there were all these startups that, and, and really like there, was this sort of a really annoying fascination around technology here. And, and this idea that, um, you know te- that there were tech- these were technological advancements. That these were advancements that were going to push us to, um, to, you know, a new stage in civilization where um, people didn't have to work and consumers got what they needed, you know, at the drop of a of a hat. And um, and it seemed like no one was really understanding that there were an entire. You know, economy of low wage workers who, um, because of the way the companies treated them, were um, were completely carved out of all labor and employment laws all over the world. Who were sustaining the system, and that this the the technology's application to the system was not not bringing you efficiency. It wasn't that you know you got your um, you got your. Taxi super fast because the the app was connecting you, um, so, you know, very quickly to a worker. It was that there was an oversupply of workers driving around the city because anyone could download this app, and we were in a moment of high unemployment. And um, and so, you know, you're the 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 convenience of the customer was really at the um, at the um, to the detriment of of the people conducting the labor and creating value for um, for the companies. And it just um, it was It all of a sudden, you know, for a long time, I resisted studying <laughs> studying this um, this world. And I sort of said, well, this is the same thing as the taxi companies, just more exploitative. And I um, over time, I, I started to embrace that while it, while they were doing the same work, what was happening was actually quite different um, in terms of how workers experienced their work, in terms of um, of how the state viewed the economy and how they were regulating it um, and in terms of what the firms got away with precisely because they were viewed as technology firms.
1: I wanna stay on this uh, worker psychology element, especially in precarious work. So um, your uh, story of, of your family in Gujarat resonated with me. I spent a few months in Gujarat back in 2011. Um, and did a fair amount of research on uh, the rapid industrialization of the Golden Corridor and all of that, and especially interviewing um, folks from indigenous communities who uh, had very suddenly their entire lives had shifted or their agricultural land had suddenly been dammed up for miles and miles and miles. Um, And there's, I feel like there is a level of parallel from that to like this rapid introduction of this gig economy um, and this shift and this technology space. And I'm wondering from that, that like I'm, I'm thinking of a specific story where someone's identity, right, had really been shifted about what their role was in the world because their work had, had to change. They had to go work in a factory where they had been farming for years. And I'm wondering, like, especially in that question of masculinity, but maybe in general, how, what, how would you describe the psychology of working in a precarious work environment?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I just want to say first that, that it's like so insightful. And, I, you know, I hesitated to even tell share the story about my family, even though I think about it all the time in the context of this work, because it's really hard for me to draw distinct parallels to tell you why they're they so similar. And yet I feel in my body that you know that when I talk to workers in this economy, especially workers who used to be taxi drivers, um that there is something very similar to what I've uh, to what I've seen in terms of the 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 um, application of quote unquote technologies for advancement in my own what is viewed as advancement in my own family. and so um, you know, I I continue to spend a lot of time, especially with taxi workers, both taxi workers who continue to drive as taxi workers because they've made financial investments to do so. Um, and then also taxi workers who have turned into Uber drivers. And, I, you know, both of these groups of drivers are independent contractors. Like they both of them are 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 are. Um, carved out of traditional labor and employment law protections. Uh, but the difference in the taxi economy was that they the drivers were working within a regulated space where there was control over supply, right? Only a certain number of taxis were on the street at any given moment, and fares were uh, were predictable because the state regulated fares. And so even though uh, a taxi driver was in San Francisco, wasn't an employee, he could say, okay, I'm going to work 10 hours a day. I'm probably going to make $350. Um, so there was that predictability to the income. Um, with Uber and Lyft, there has been zero predictability. So a driver can um, can drive for uh, a one week and make Eight hundred dollars, and then a month later, drive and um, drive the same amount of time in the same amount of place and make two hundred dollars. Um, and in fact, drivers, the full-time drivers who conduct the vast majority of work on the platform, they say that over the last three or four year, year years, their incomes have gone down. Um, their yearly incomes have gone down by about sixty percent, which is something that they could never have predicted. Um, but in addition to that, there's something again. This is about like the technological application of um, of uh, app based um, app based services onto this economy, which I think really, really does have to do with technology and not um, and not just the business model. Um, because these workers are matched via um, via an app, they don't have the kind of ability to develop a clientele. Um, they don't have control over where they go in the city, um, in the sense that the the algorithms sort of nudge them to go in particular places. So in the taxi economy, um, you, I, I when I when I wrote about um, the way taxi drivers talked about their work, particularly men, they talked about it as though they were hunting, like they sort of had this um, this idea that they were truly small businessmen because they were kind of um, you know using their charm and their um, and their know how and their knowledge of the streets to build a clientele and um and then they were they were picking up fares you know they were like going through different parts of the city to pick up fares and then when they wanted to stop doing that they would go to the airport and hang out with their friends while they awaited um a ride and there was you know they would like shoot the shit and um and play games and you know and it was there was some there was um some joy to their work. Um, there a lot of, a lot of camaraderie and what I see, um, as being very different in, um, in, uh, in the Uber economy is dr- drivers no longer describe their work through the sort of masculine, um, joy of hunting. Um, but instead really, which we can problematize, but instead really talk about it through, um, through a feeling of addiction. Um, like they feel like they are psychologically addicted to the app, um, in the sense that every time they, they, they feel a ping, um, they sort of like, uh, that, you know, you get that sort of psychological rush that you, that you're about to get some money. Um, and part of why and in, in my, um, in my book manuscript, part of why I'm talking, what I talk about is part of the reason that they feel this, um, this sort of addiction is because it is such a gamble. There is so much uncertainty around where they're going to have to, where the where the app is going to tell them to drive, um, where they, how much money they're going to make, um, what kinds of fares they get. There's like, they literally have no control um, and they can't get out of their cars, right? Like they're now holding lots in um, in a lot of the airports, but because there's so many of them, um, there's the, most of the airport authorities don't let them get out of their cars to sort of hang out. And anyway they're all so desperate to work because there's such little money that they can't afford to, to hang out. And so all of the sort of aspects of the work that gave them identity um, that uh, sort of allowed them to feel some degree of, of, um, of freedom, of um, feeling of, of independence, a feeling of like they were really applying an, a skill or an acumen to their work um, it ha- has completely has completely gone. And, um, and so like you don't when you talk to drivers now, particularly drivers who have done this for um, you know more than six months, um, the full-time drivers that I organize with, I mean, they do it because they have to. But if there was another way, they wouldn't be doing this work anymore. Um, there's not the same sense of, of, of professional identity around it.
0: So it sounds like in a sense you're saying this addiction that these um, gig economy drivers are experiencing is almost like a sense of powerlessness as well. And I'm wondering if we're thinking of ways to approach solutions to this problem, Um, We've had folks on the show who are engineers who might uh, approach this solution space algorithmically. We've had people who are designers or um, high up at large tech companies, and maybe they would approach it with design decisions. And um, you're situated in law and policy. And so I'm wondering how you would approach this problem from that perspective.
2: Yeah. I mean, so... um... I think that this industry has to be has to be regulated, um, such that workers are given a guaranteed minimum wage or a wage floor, um, and that that wage floor is tied to time, so that there is some predictability. Once you um, once you go to once you turn on your app, once you go to work, you can say, okay, I'm going to work X number of hours, but even if I don't get The number of fares that I want, I still have some wage floor, so I'm not going to lose money so that there's some feeling of control there. Um, You know, one of the perverse things about the American legal system, one of the is that uh, if a worker is considered an independent contractor, they risk when they organize together, they risk um, or, or when they unionize together, they risk violating antitrust laws. So you're essentially colluding if you're um, if you're two independent contractors or 300,000 independent contractors working together to to better your working conditions. And so the perverse nature of um, of Ubers, you know, maintaining that these drivers are independent contractors is that uh, unions have been very reticent to organize in this arena for fear of um, for fear of violating uh, antitrust laws and incurring that sort of financial liability and so you know in addition to a basic wage floor in addition to the basic protections workers compensation unemployment insurance that all workers really should have um i think uh, you know from a law and policy perspective, these drivers absolutely need the right to, um, to collectively organize and collectively bargain with their employers to raise and have some control over their working conditions. You know, and traditionally we think of working conditions as wages. We can, uh, you know, w- what's safe um, and what's. Uh, you know, like if there was a union right now, drivers would probably bargain to make sure that there was, um, they got PPE right Right now. Lyft is trying to sell drivers PPE in the middle of a pandemic, as opposed to just providing, you know, hand sanitizer. Um, so yeah. So, um, but so, you know, I think that there, and, and we're, we're, we're sort of getting there. I think the pandemic that we're currently in has really, um, Opened the eyes of regulators who have just who decided over the past eight years that it wasn't worth venturing into this economy to kind of try and um, try and force these companies to abide by the same laws and regulations that even you know Walmart and McDonald's abide by, and um, and so in the last just month and a half you've seen two attorney generals, both in California and in Massachusetts, um, say that Uber and Lyft are misclassifying their workers, that they are employees, and that they need to be treated as employees. So I'm I'm really quite hopeful about that. And I actually think that that recognition, when and if these companies are forced to sort of um, to provide a wage floor to these workers, and and you know that to me is this central point here is, is the wage floor um, that's tied to to time that that will actually shift all of the engineering and design. Um, decisions. So, so much right now of how this app is engineered, um, so much of even like the graphic design that goes into the app as the drivers experience it is informed by behavioral psychology because the the companies really want to um, exert a high degree of control without looking like they're exerting a high degree of control, without looking like they're an employer. So instead of just paying everyone a wage floor, what they've done is, um, you know, hired Hundreds of social scientists to um, to help them think about how to shift driver behavior um, through algorithms and um, and through design, you know, through visual design of what the drivers experience, and if. If you know, if they have to fundamentally shift their um, their own orientation to the workers, if they have to, you know, legally own that they are employers, that kind of goes away. Like you, there's no need to to you know push everyone in one direction or um, or use income targeting to get people to work longer and harder. Um, you just you know you you have uh, a workforce that's available to you when they can be available to you and those drivers know they ha- they are going to be controlled and you are you, the in the company can more ex- more clearly exert that control and so um i really i think that 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 solution um is which is i think only a half solution a full a full solution is actual full unionization but um the half solution the move to to an uh an some kind of hourly wage floor is um, is critical to, to everything and will shape everything.
1: So sometimes in our conversations with guests, um, we talk about AI ethics, right? <laughs> because that's what the podcast is about. Uh, and we talk about technology ethics and this question of intentionality comes up. So are these companies, um, in your expert opinion, is there an intentionality to bringing in Unethical uh, systems essentially, or to what degree can we put responsibility on the, on the systems that maybe the capitalist systems that they're operating in? And to what degree can we put on like personal responsibility to the designers who are designing these apps?
2: Um, I think the responsibility lies in both of those uh, both of those places. I generally tend to think of um that we need to change structures and that you know oftentimes individuals don't have as much autonomy in making decisions as we um as we like to think that they have, and that um and that trying to you know force an engineer within Uber to push back against the company's entire business model um, in making the decisions that he he or she or they might make and um in, in you know, Engineering a particular um, algorithm that controls a driver—that that's sort of—it would be great, <laughs> but it's we're not li- we're not likely to to actually um, uh, control um, or or cannot expect that kind of control. That so much of this is structural. That said, I think that the that part of the problem here is that these companies. Um, the, or at least the people that work for these companies and, you know, many of the people that work for these companies have come out of the Obama administration, not on the engineering side, but definitely on the, the governance side and the uh, public policy side and the PR side. Um, these people have really convinced themselves that Uber is a solution to um, advanced capitalism as opposed to um, A problem created by advanced capitalism. So, the argument that that they make is well, you know, the economy is so bad, wages are so stagnant, this is a way for people to supplement their income, to sort of have some control over their lives. Um, And we know that while that might be the case in some instances, the vast majority of the work that is conducted. On the on the platform for the platform is conducted by workers who use, who do it full-time and that even when workers who work casually um, they are uh, often making less than the minimum wage which is unacceptable incurring all the business expenses and risk that um, that companies normally should um, should incur and um, and are are In a situation where they need full time work, so the idea that creating more insecure work somehow is a solution for the problem of insecurity, I think is um, is is a bad one. And um, and so if I were to, you know, it would I I I have long wanted to sort of. Talk to engineers at Uber to think to talk to them about how they um, they conceptualize the work that they're doing and the company that they're working for. I think it would be so interesting to think um, to think to see through their eyes. Um, the implications of the work that they're doing. Um, I, I have, I'm so notorious now that I, I, I cannot do a project like that. No one would ever talk to me. (laughs) Um, but, but it's, it's, it's something that I'm, um, that I, I have intellectual interest in, but I really firmly believe that, um, putting the onus on them to do things differently is sort of in some ways a fool's errand that they, um, you know, they're caught in this larger cultural, um, an economic system, not just advanced capitalism, but also the specific uh, culture of Silicon Valley that um, in which they sort of understand everything they're doing through the lens of techno-utopianism. You know, they are creating tools to um, to make things faster and easier and better for workers and consumers. And who can, who can complain about that?
1: Could you say more about uh, techno-utopianism? I don't even know if I said that right. I'm gonna say it again. Techno-utopianism and how that relates to questions of globalization. Um, and this advanced capitalism, uh, that you're talking about.
2: <laughs> just throw that in there <laughs> you know, at the end. Yeah, just, just, just put it, just yeah, put it all just, together. Yeah, sure. Just, I'll just, I'll just talk about, I'll just, I'll just write my, the- my, my political theory book for you right now. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so, um, techno-utopianism as, you know, as your listeners know, is this idea that, um, technology can, um. Can advance, you know, create quote unquote advancements in society and bring us closer to um, a place where where people are equal, where people, where everyone has food, where everyone um, has their needs needs met, and um, you know, bring us to to a desirable um, a desirable place. And I think it's pretty clear that that is, um, you know, for to you and I, that's pretty it's pretty clear that that is not a a, a reality, and that that's very much. Um, embedded in a set of um, a set of assumptions met all of you know from uh, from who is doing work you know like t- technology even ai technology um the most labor-intensive p- part of ai technology is conducted by uh, precarious workers in the global south who are doing all the cleaning labeling collecting data that um, also the assumptions around um around you know what is good um, i think are are uh, there's a lot to problematize um, and in the context of of globalization and colonialism, i think there is a connection to be made um a very a very uh, very strong connection actually can we can talk about western feminism in this in the same breath but this idea that you know um the West and the West's ideas around technology are um, are superior and um, and tied to civilization, and we um, we have to make sure that the rest of the world, um, you know, uh, gets it and and helps us work towards this um, towards this techno utopian place. You know, technology is, has always been used in um, in the context of colonialism. Um, even as colonialism became the project of quote unquote development, um, as a sort of rallying cry for why we need to go into these places to advance societies, to quote unquote advance societies, and oftentimes, actually, always, um, that was intertwined with a particular um, uh, idea of what capitalism should look like, particularly in relationship to um, to the social specialist um States in which, uh, in the post of in the post colonial period, in the develop and what we see as the develop quote unquote development period, where uh, what we saw as states sort of trying to imagine different kinds of realities and different kinds of civilizations, different kinds of um, of spaces where um, where advancement wasn't so clearly you know you think about this in the Gandhian context where you know we're trying to draw or to make our own um, make our own cotton and um, and keep our own language. Language, and this was about going back to the um, going back to weaving our own our own cloth as opposed to embracing the mills of um, uh, that were forced upon the the Indian laborers by the British. And, um, you know, the project of, of of technology in that sense has always, I think, really been intertwined with um, with a project of um, of of colonialism and imperialism and um, and. And help in terms of how shaped how we conceptualize um, people and and cultures and and states in the global south.
1: One thing I've appreciated about our conversation so far is that, Uh, We've gone from the the global to the local to the global to the local, uh, which I think is how these conversations almost need to be had with that context. And I'm wondering if we could go back to the local. Uh, So we are recording this on July 17th, 2020, just to date it. Um, And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about uh, your own locality in California and what is happening right now in relationship to these topics
2: yeah so and I should say just very briefly that I think part of why we went from the local to the global and you know to from the present to the to the past just now in our conversation is because I think that so much of what I have researched and the kind of organizing that I've done in my life is a product of who I am and I very much am a am a you know a post colonial subject who is um who has seen um, and experienced the global South um, in a, in a very particular moment, and then also ex- experienced and seen migration in a very particular moment, and um, and I, you know, everything that I even like in my research today, all of that sort of um, feels very very relevant to the the lives of the people that um, that the precarious workers who who I um, organize and study um, alongside. So. Let me tell you a little bit about what's happening today in California. So we are in a pandemic and we have, um, you know, upwards of 400 to 500,000 workers in California who have been um, driving for Uber and Lyft, um, many of whom um, also drive on other for other companies, but also have been driving for Uber and Lyft. Those drivers, some of them have um, gotten the coronavirus and some of them have died. Um, we some, I organized with this group, Rideshare Drivers United, and we've had a, um, at least a few members die as a result of their, their exposure to the coronavirus. Um, some of those drivers continued to work. Drivers who have been, um, who during the lockdown, many of them, many of them were able to stop working um, because they had other forms of support or they were able to go um, get, you know, get, go on snap, get Food benefits, um, but many of them continued to work because they were unable to procure unemployment insurance because the companies had refused to pay into unemployment insurance for the last eight years, um, and those drivers, many, the ones that had to continue to work as essential workers, have um, have fallen ill and some of them have have died as a direct result of this um, of this really irresponsible business model, um, and so in recognition of this reality, the state of California. About three or four weeks into the lockdown um, decided to sue the um, the companies, Uber and Lyft, after, you know, I mean, they've been violating the law for eight, eight years. But for the first time, they stood up and said, OK, you know, we're in a really bad um, situation here. These workers are in a really bad situation. There's nothing about these um, these. <laughs> that these apps that mean that mean that they that they can't follow basic um, labor and employment laws, and so we're going to enforce the law against the companies. And so they held a really big press conference and they sued. Um, in the middle of the suit, uh, the companies also qual- qualified their ballot initiative, so they have put a ballot initiative um, on the November ballot. It's Proposition 22, uh, where they are essentially codifying precarity. They are saying, um, we will agree to only pay drivers uh, when they are engaged, when there's a rider in the car, um, and we will give them substandard um, uh, compensation, workers' compensation, um, for when, again, only when there's someone in the car and they're injured, and um, and a a very very uh, small number of drivers can get, again, some for some sort of substandard health insurance. And they it's like the most anti-democratic proposition I've ever seen. They make they've made it so that seven eighths of the California legislature has to agree in order to amend any portion of the law if it is passed. Um, And so we're we're at this like really crazy crossroads where on the one hand, the state has finally seen past sort of the shiny app and, um, and is looking into the eyes of the workers who are dying as a result of the irresponsible models um, that these companies have adhered to. And then on the other hand, you have a, a companies that are well-financed, which, but by the way, have not ever turned a profit in eight years, um, that are using all of their money to put to buy law. To literally, to literally to bylaw, they put 110 million dollars. They've they're selling workers' PPE, um, but they've put 110 million dollars on t- uh, into this ballot initiative, and um, and they're doing you know everything they can do to to get it passed. It would it would it would be a, um, a devastating, um, result. And I, what I'm worried about is that it would be the beginning of, uh, normalizing this kind of, of standard, substandard, um, labor conditions across the industry. So app work makes up a very small percentage of the work done in the United States, less than 1% um, of the work done in the United States. But the, what it represents is, um, is the potential of many industries to become appified to um, which which would the problem again, would not be the app with a business model um, applied through the app. So the potential for, for workers to all become independent contractors and bear the traditional risks of, um, of business. And so we're at a really kind of, uh, things could go two ways in the coming months. Um, And one way would be, you know, really good to grow secure, stable work. And the other one would be um, a devastating blow to the labor movement and to workers' lives. And it would be something that would be very hard to shake off.
0: So thinking even further than just two months in the future, let's say maybe 5, 10, 20 years in the future, based off of what you've experienced with your research in this space, what do you see as maybe two sides here. What do you see as the um, likely future for the gig economy and for people who um, do things like driving for Uber and Lyft? And what do you see or hope maybe as a much better envisioned future, unless maybe they're the same, which would be great too. (laughs)
2: I have to be optimistic, otherwise I couldn't continue to do the kind of organizing work I do with um, with these drivers. Um, and so, and and I, I, frankly, you know, they make me optimistic. I have never, I have done a lot of of worker organizing in my life, and I've never seen the kind of self, radical self organizing that I've seen in this industry ever anywhere. Um, you know, they are these are workers who work really long hours who. Um, who have banded together, again, this is Rideshare Drivers United in California, who have really banded together and um, and envisioned the kind of work they want to to be a part of their lives and are Forming one-on-one relationships with other people in their workforce to grow, um, to grow with, growing what they call an undocumented union. You know, because they they don't have um, status under the National Labor Relations Act. It's like I've never met um, a smarter, more, um, more thoughtful and. Um, articulate passionate and effective group of people as 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 the as the particular group of people that i that i'm um that i'm working with the drivers that i'm working with right now and so my answer is really this that that um what i what i see in the future i think is um i'm very hopeful we will uh, be able to attain i think um most likely we would attain we would stay within the firm model. Um, you know, I what I would like to see is a cooperative model where you have, you know, drivers co co-owning and making decisions around, um, around these issues. But I think what we're most likely to see is a the go moving forward the traditional um, firm model where you have an employer and then you have um, full-time employees who work in this economy. And I think we'll probably continue to call it the gig economy, but it's no longer going to be about gigs. Um, I think workers are going to you know have predictable schedules and predictable incomes. Um, I think the frontier of um, of where we're going next is actually thinking about data in this economy and who owns the data, um, how is the data being leveraged and used, and um, and what kind of data is being collected. So, one of the things that the workers in in Europe, particularly in the United Kingdom, have been much more um, much better at organizing around is um, is data ownership. Um, because of the GDPR, they have been able to sue to at least um, try to get to get more information on the kinds of data that the companies um, are collecting through them. There's a decision on, on the matter that's going to be made in, in the next few months. Um, and so we'll we'll see how that pans out. But in the United States, drivers are always talking to me about how, um, you know, how the data they collect benefits the companies, and yet they don't even know what. Their bodies and what their labor is being used to produce and collect, and um, it's just that they haven't gotten a chance. Like they're just like really trying for the for to to get a wage floor, and they haven't sort of gotten a chance to organize around that. But I think that's um, once there's a full time workforce, once there's a union, um, I think that that's going to be an issue that that workers in the next you know two three to five years um, are going to are going to be in a position to negotiate over.
1: So, you know, we know that you've listened to the show before, so you probably know the question that's coming. Uh, but as the Radical AI podcast and part of our project is to help define through all of these different disciplines and backgrounds, this nebulous concept of uh, radicality or what it means to be radical. And so we're curious from where you're seated at, at law and in this gig economy and precarious work, how you think about the concept of radical and if or whether or how you situate your own work within that concept.
2: I think of, um, of radical as changing um, or transforming the way that we think about our social world and the way that our social world functions um, such that we um, prioritize the lives and the needs of the most vulnerable and the historically marginalized and oppressed. Um, and so, in that sense, I think my work is is very radical. <laughs> um, I think it's easy when you do work in um, in labor law to think of um, to think of yourself as radical. But I think that one thing that's often missing from um, the field of of labor law and labor sociology more broadly is um, is thinking about Um, about worker agency in the context of um, shifting political economies and that's something um, I think that's necessary to to Maintain um, a radical methodology in research, is to constantly center um, the most vulnerable, the most marginalized, the most oppressed. Um, but I think it's also really important for me, for my research, to always have some impact. Um, you know, I'm not writing for myself, and I'm not writing for sociologists, I'm not writing for um, for law scholars. I'm really, I'm really writing for the people that I work with, um, and the people that I work alongside, and the people that I stand along um, alongside um, the the workers. And the Drivers themselves, and so I, for me, that's what—that's um, why I think of my work as, as radical. And um, and I think I think in California, I like I've been really lucky. It's really rare to for a scholar to see in their lifetime to see that their work has had any kind of um, impact. And I've been I've been really lucky in the last last few years to be able to witness it.
0: So for the drivers of companies like Uber and Lyft and other rideshare companies or just maybe people who are working in the gig economy in general, who might be feeling that sense of addiction or powerlessness that we were talking about before. Do you have any advice for them to maybe help them um, reclaim
2: a little bit of agency in their work? Yes, build a movement. Um, Meet with your driver friends and build relationships. One-on-one relationships, personal relationships, shared stories of, tr- of you know trouble at work. Those are uh, the the building blocks of um, of a movement of workers, and that is I think why the workers in RideShare Drivers United that I've that I'm that I, I witness and study. I think that's why they're so passionate is because this is the only agency um, that they've had in their lives, and they find it's so it's um, the the camaraderie and the um, and the connection that they get from um, from the relationships they've built with other other drivers is so meaningful because so much has been taken from them and so that's um you know that's my my little my little token of advice
1: and vita as we come to the end of this interview if folks want to find out more about you and your research Uh, how would they get in contact with you?
2: Well, I've been meaning to make a website, but that hasn't happened. So so you can always email me, um, duvalv at uchastings.edu. And also I have an SSRN where you can sort of look at some of the things I've been publishing.
1: Well, Vina, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate the conversation.
2: Thank you for having me. It was so fun.
1: Again, we are so grateful that Vina was able to join us for this wonderful conversation. And it stirred up a lot, I, I think, in me uh, about this question of identity in these socio-technical systems that we're creating, whether those are apps or uh, whether they're just programs or whether they're other ways that machine learning is impacting our, our lives. But people are doing these things and creating these things. And whenever we're doing and creating as humans, we're uh, it's feeding back into us, into our identity, into who we are. And so for me, I, I was thinking a lot, especially about this question of um, masculinity that Vina was bringing up uh, in terms of identity and what's at stake in this move from a more classical uh, or traditional taxi system to uh, Uber and Lyft and how folks feel like they're losing their agency, and especially um, in this traditionally hyper-masculine field, how people are losing their uh, male identity. Um, and that's definitely something that resonates with me as someone who's going through a career shift uh, of being able to, you know, make money and be a professional and now moving back into a student role. And it's just been interesting for my own identity, how that's shifted. And it made me curious, this conversation with Vina about uh, how we're socialized in a masculine way, how I am, right? And how that impacts how I think about career shifting and being back in a place of humi- humility instead of expertise and how that question of agency um, shifts. So obviously it's not a complete, you can't map it <laughs> completely. And one one thing is is a real, like it's a justice issue, right? It's something that people are not choosing um, in the way that Uber and Lyft are running their businesses. And really they're the only game in town now, um, pricing out a lot of those older style, uh, traditional taxi companies, which even those were problematic, right. In certain ways in terms of identity. Um, but, uh, that's, that's kind of what stirred up, uh, in me. And I think there's just so much rich, uh, set of research questions that can be followed up on from this in the legal field, like Vienna's doing, but also in our field, Jess, um, in looking at how these systems are impacting our lived identity out in the world.
0: Yeah, totally. I'm going to definitely latch on to that agency word that you keep throwing around there because that's what I just kept coming back to with this interview. Uh, And mostly, honestly, uh, with thinking about all of the different platforms and apps that Vina was speaking about during the interview, like Uber and Lyft and really anything that involves this new gig economy. So not even just ride sharing services, but just the gig economy in general and how powerless these people and these workers feel who have to use these platforms to make a living. And it really just makes me think again and again about how important it is for the designers of these technologies and these platforms to think so critically about the unintended consequences of the choices that they're making when they're developing these applications. And it just makes me wonder, you know, is there Is there a design choice or design decision that could be made in these apps that gives more power to the taxi drivers or, I guess, the Uber drivers who used to be taxi drivers or the food delivery service person who works for uh, Postmates or whatever platform of your choice is? Is there a design choice that we can make that actually helps to empower these workers instead of taking their agency away from them and really making them question their identity like you were just saying? saying, Dylan, whether that's masculinity, femininity, or just their humanness, or, or whatever it is that they held on so tightly to in their old job. And it's interesting because I think about, you know, this is kind of a metaphor for the ways that not just platforms, but algorithms and technology in so many ways has begun to really run our lives and take away some of the power that we've held for so long. And I'm thinking, you know, it's not just people who work for the gig economy, it's our movies that we watch are now the movies that are recommended to us, the items that we buy, the jobs we apply for, the ads that we watch or that come up for us on YouTube and different streaming services. We don't really have total agency or autonomy over those things anymore. It's kind of like the technology has taken over and just sort of told us, no, this is what you do now. This is the way we do things. When you take that into something that is just so important in our life and such a big part of our safety and our security as humans, you know, the need to work and to get money and to to have labor, (laughs) uh, it's, you know, it's, there's quite a bit more at stake when we take away the agency and the power from the users of those platforms.
1: Yeah, and a big topic um, that has come up in uh, my field of religious studies for uh, however many thousands of years (laughs) that humans have been around and doing sort of like religion work, um, is that question of like, what it means to be a good life, right? And this has been like a question about, uh, even like in Aristotle, right? Like early philosophy, like what does it mean to, to live well? Um, and I think one thing that you're pointing out, Jess, is that like, work and creation and labor um, has traditionally been understood as, as part of that. And so what does it mean, is it possible for someone to live a good life when their work is precarious, right? When their labor is precarious, um, where they don't have the agency that they need. They don't have that basic, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs of like security, right? That fundamental level on the base for the work that they're doing, um, which, as we've discussed, and as Vina discussed, is such a big part of people's identity. It's not just we don't just show up to just like perform a perform a function, perform a task, and then and then leave, right? It's like we, uh, whether we want to or not, we get to be defined both internally and then sometimes externally by by what we do, um, and that's really complicated, obviously. And being got to the heart of like why that, that is so complicated and why it's, um, there's just a lot of nuance there, obviously, which we can't really get into right here. But I think it does lay bare that, that fundamental question of like, okay, there is something real at stake for people in how their identity is being shaped by this new landscape of the gig economy and of work. And it might not, uh, and it, in this case, right, it probably isn't, um, for the betterment of people's lives. Yeah.
0: And I guess that's why we appreciate Vina and her work so much, right? Because when I asked her what she thinks the future looks like, she was hopeful. And it's people like her that make me hopeful too, that maybe we don't have to just submit and be powerless to these platforms that are taking over the economy and the labor force that we've known for our entire lives and that society is known for its entire existence, right? We can, we can lean on knowing that there's work being done in this space and people like Vina are advocating for the rights of these workers and for the rights of anyone who is using any of these platforms and, um, Yeah, and that gives me a little spark of hope in all of this and thinking that, you know, we can create the future that we envision and that we hope to see.
1: For more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at radicalai.org.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at radicalaipod. Catch our weekly episodes at 7 a.m. Mountain Time on Wednesdays. And, as always, stay radical.